Well, in this series on Ecclesiastes, we've been studying this man, Solomon, who was the wisest man of his time, the wealthiest man of his time, the, the most successful man of his time, the greatest ruler of his time. And the whole book of Ecclesiastes represents the wisdom of Solomon, where he's just out exploring life. And I like to say that Solomon kind of drove life like somebody with a sports car who stole it, you know? I mean, he's just pedal to the metal. He's pushing against the outer elements of life. He had, you know, hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines, which by the way was absolutely wrong and, and, and against God's will. He had wealth beyond measure, which God had cautioned him against. He had power and took that to the extreme. I mean, he blew past all the limits that God desired for him. And then he began to see, oh, life is not what I thought it was. And so as Solomon kind of has blown past God's own limitations of balance that God would desire for him, he's finding out, you know what? At the end of the day, everything I've experienced, everything I've engaged in, everything I've tried to, all the parties I've gone to, all the money I've spent, all the women I've been with, it's all been vanity. It's all been vapor. The Hebrew word literally means it's a puff of, of air. It's, it's gone. It's a breath. Now, as we've sort of built this book out, we've come to this conclusion over and over that everything under the sun is broken, is fallen, is meaningless, is vanity because of the reality that everything ends in death, that the earth is decaying, that it's going kind of backwards, not forwards, that, that you know, everything's not getting better and better. Things are actually slowing down and decaying. That's how life is, you know. Every day you take is a day that's actually closer to your death, you know. And welcome to church, by the way. It's good to be together. We get to this place in chapter seven where there's this significant shift. It's like Solomon has already come to his conclusion. Everything's meaningless because death is the end of everything. And now he's gonna say, okay, so what's the best way to live? There's no long-term meaning in anything, but is, are some things better than others? And he's gonna say the answer is yes. In fact, what we're gonna to see today is wisdom for living in a world under the sun. In fact, most of the rest of the book, it kind of is a, a page turn or a, or a chapter turn this morning from Ecclesiastes 6 to Ecclesiastes 7. Most of the rest of the book is actually about how do we live in a world that's broken? How do we live in a world that, as Carl mentioned, is upside down? Now, if you're paying attention to what Carl just read, you're thinking, man, that's some weird stuff, right? Um, he said, the day you die is better than the day you're born. You're better off at a funeral than a party. Sorrow is better than laughter. A rebuke is better than a song. Now, how does this all make sense? You have to understand what's going on is Solomon's saying, look, the world doesn't make sense. The world's upside down. And so the only way to live in an upside down world is with upside down wisdom. So Solomon is gonna give us some upside down wisdom and we're actually gonna find out maybe it's actually right side up after all. The wisdom that is. Now, here's the analogy just to kind of keep with you as we go through this. Um, do you guys remember Maps. That's a real question, you know? I guess technically I mean like printed maps, like, you know? Uh, those of you that are, you know, significantly younger, uh, you don't even know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, um, first thing you need to know about a map is don't ever unfold it because you won't be able to get it folded again, right? And you'll just end up calling it in the ball. Maybe that was just my own problem. 
Um, but, you know, uh, I took my family not long ago to an amusement park. We went to Dollywood over spring break, and they give you a map when you come in. And my daughters are like, ooh, why aren't you using your phone? I'm like, this is a map. Let me tell you what a map actually is. And we're going through the park. Now, maps are oriented north-south almost always, right? So as long as we're going north, we're in good shape. But we got to the north end of the park, and they wanted to go to the race cars. You know, those... They call them race cars, but you know what? They really are the kitty cars. And, and that's down south. And so I'm like looking at the map and I'm like, okay, we got to come down here. But like, all right, it, it, it says that we're going to have to go left, but that's actually going to be a right because we're going to be oriented that way. And they're like, what are you talking about? And finally, I just flipped the map over. And I'm like, all right, now when it says right, we're going to go right. And it made a lot more sense. This is what Solomon is doing. He's saying, look, the world we live in is upside down. It's broken. Death's the end of everything. You need some upside down wisdom in order to navigate it. So we get to Solomon's upside down wisdom here, beginning in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1. Now, Last service, I spent too much time walking through these and I had to rush the application at the end. I don't want to do that because I care about you guys. And there's something for us here at the end that I think is important. So if I talk fast, you're going to know why. And we'll just all kind of walk through these verses uh, fairly quickly. Verse one, a good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Okay, the first one I can handle, the second one's crazy, right? Let's break them down just really quickly. We've heard this before. In fact, you know, uh, Proverbs 22, you know, good name is, is better to be had than great riches. Uh, but here's what Solomon is saying. He's like, ointment represents luxury. Ointment represents what makes you look good, smell good, was sort of a symbol in that era that you've, like, you've got life by the tail. Like, you know what? You're not dirty. You're clean. You smell good. People would not have typically smelled good except for the wealthy people. But what Solomon's saying is what's inside, like your reputation, your character, who you are beyond your externals, that's what name meant in Hebrew is kind of the nature of you is better than that. And then, you know, the big idea here is the core of who you are is more important than the stuff that you have. That's not how our world keeps score. Okay, our world keeps score by what you drive, where you live, the clothes you wear, how you look, if you're the right size or not. That's how the world keeps score. And Solomon is saying, no, 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 there's actually something better than that. It's, your, it's who you are. It's your name. It's your reputation. Now, he goes on. I got to just keep moving. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. How does this make sense? In Hebrew, the word better doesn't necessarily mean more enjoyable or more fun. It means more valuable. Like, you know, it's something that you'd rather have. Now, how would I rather have my day of death? There's a couple different ways you could interpret this. I think in the context of Ecclesiastes 7, the best way to read this is, is kind of the, the idea here that life is better lived with the end in mind. Now, we celebrate birthdays. We don't celebrate death days, so to speak. But there is a day coming in all of our futures, if Jesus does not come back first, where people will gather in a room like this, or, you know, most of us can be a lot smaller than this room probably, and there'll be people that will talk about us in the past tense. So Solomon's saying, live with that in mind. You might say it this way, life is better lived with the end in mind rather than the beginning. I think this is kind of the ancient Jewish version of Tim McGraw's song, live like you were dying. You know, like go ride the bull and grow a Fu Manchu or whatever those things are. No, the bull is named Fu Manchu. I think that's what it was. Uh, he says, someday I hope you'll get the chance to live like you were dying. Okay, this is straight out of Ecclesiastes chapter seven. Now what Solomon means by this becomes more clear in the next verse. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. 
because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. So this is upside down, right? I mean, if I asked you this afternoon, you've got two choices. You can come with me to a funeral or you can come with me to a party. You know, you're gonna be like, uh, party? Solomon's gonna say that's the wrong choice. You're better off in the house of mourning. You're better off at the funeral. Now, how could that be? You know, again, it's this idea that you live differently in light of the end. That One commentator put it this way. Every funeral anticipates our own. So we get a little bit dressed up. We, we sit down. It's sort of a somber atmosphere. And you hear about someone's life. And you can't help but reflect on your own life. And you hear people get up and talk about what this person made a difference in their life and their special memories. And you can't help but think about, am, am I creating special memories with people that care for me? And what will they say about me when I die? And that could be a long time from now. That could be this month. You know, we don't know. There's this tension that a funeral creates that actually is more healthy for our souls than a party. And Jody and I both went to the University of Georgia and right behind Sanford Stadium, the football stadium, there's a, an old cemetery. And I used to love wandering through there and all my friends thought I was just weird, you know, and I probably was. But, but I, to this day, I love walking through old cemeteries and, and there's something about seeing the, the stones that rise up above you and, you know, some are are, are really, really old. I remember seeing some that were over 100 years, 150 years old, and you read the dates and you do the math. Oh, that person was 58. Oh, that woman was 27. Here's one that didn't make it to his 10th birthday. And you start thinking about life. And I remember praying as I'd walk through that cemetery at the University of Georgia, you know, what's, what's gonna be held for me in that dash between my birth date and my death date? And God, would you help me to glorify you? I mean, some of my spiritual growth happened from wandering through this cemetery and praying to God that he would just use my life. There's some value in this. What Solomon is saying, don't just go to parties. Spend some time thinking about it. He says, because this is the end of every man. He's, in other words, death is the end of every man and the living take it to heart. The deaf can't take it to heart anymore. Their time is done. At least on this earth, the living can take it to heart. So don't miss what you can learn at a funeral. Verse three, sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. It's kind of a confusing verse. Don't think of happy as like smiley, happy, happy, joy, joy. Um, think of it as the heart is put right. Now in Hebrew, the heart, you hear that spoken all throughout this passage. The heart is not the center of your emotions. It's just your whole core person. You know, sometimes it's translated mind. Sometimes it's translated heart, but it's the same word. Sometimes it's translated choices. Sometimes it's translated your deep desires. It's all of who you are. You know, sort of the, the wellspring of life, as the Psalms say, is your heart. And so what he's saying here is that sometimes if you're willing to engage into some sorrow, your heart can be put right. If you're willing to step into the hardship of life and not just walk around like, you know, hard things don't exist. I'm just gonna be happy all the time. Sometimes your heart can be healed by opening your eyes to the hard parts of living in a broken world. I might say it this way. Woundedness never heals by pretending everything is just fine. It never heals that way. You know, sometimes you actually have to feel proper emotion about the brokenness of this current creation that we live in, this upside down world, rather than living in denial. 
Again, this is upside down wisdom because the world's not gonna tell you to like, you know, don't think about the hard stuff. Just focus on the positive. It's the message of positivity as if that's the most important thing we need in life is just to be positive. The most important thing we need in life is redemption. Redemption starts with an acknowledgement of brokenness. Do you understand? So Solomon is saying sometimes you need to feel the weight of your hurt expectations and the brokenness and everything around you that is falling apart because that's what's real. That's what's true. Then you can begin to move forward toward healing and redemption. We'll get there on the back end of the message. Verse four, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Same theme. Where I want to go here is talk about our tendency to escape. Okay? Think about how all our entertainment, I think, has underneath it is an escapist instinct. Life is hard. Let's go to the amusement park. Life is hard. Let's binge out on Netflix. Life is hard. Let's drink. Let's, you know, substances. Whatever it is. Whatever your, your drug of choice, so to speak, that's where we go to when life gets hard. And so what Solomon is saying is it's foolish to only spend your time in the house of pleasure. I might paraphrase it this way. True life can never be found by simply distracting yourself from what is true about life. You gotta enter into it. Same with the previous verse. Think about how much time and money and energy we just spend on escaping reality. And video games are the big thing right now. And virtual reality is coming. And I fear for my grandkids that they'll never engage the real world because the virtual world is so much more comfortable and so much more exciting. Um, I'm not knocking going to see a good movie every once in a while and, and engaging and can learn a lot from good stories, particularly stories about life change and redemption. And there are some good ones out there but we must not forget what Solomon is saying here. The mind of fools just stays in the house of pleasure all the time in order to escape the realities of this life. Verse five, you know, he's continuing. He's really pushing hard, isn't he? Upside down wisdom. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Okay, let me give you another choice. Tonight, you've got two choices. You can either go to a concert at Bridgestone or you can sit down with a friend of yours whom you know wants to speak into your life and challenge you on something hard. Uh, going to the concert, right? We tend to run away toward anything that makes us uncomfortable. Even if it's someone saying, listen, there's an area of your life that I think you're blind to and I care about you and I wanna sit down with you and I wanna help you with this area. Like, no, thank you, I'm busy. You know, I got a Netflix thing to watch tonight or whatever it is. I'm going to this concert. Um, he's not knocking uh, music, by the way, but it's a contrast between wise words and foolish words. And I just, this isn't the point of, it's not the main point of the text, but I couldn't help thinking about all the foolishness that's in the lyrics of the music that's really popular in our day. You know, the, the, the popular music in our day, you know, you have different tastes and some of you like it, some of you like other things, but, but it's the soundtrack of our culture. It's the soundtrack of our culture, and we're a part of it, okay? So can you imagine trying to help a friend who's struggling with a difficult, complex relationship, and, and you just say, you know what you need? I got this Justin Bieber song that's perfect for this. You know, you would never do that. 
You would never do that, yet you're happy to sing along with the lyrics. It's, you know, some foolishness here, not just knocking on Bieber. You would never sit down with someone who's trying to put their life back together and say two words you need to hear today, Lady Gaga. You know, that's just not what's going to come to your mind. But we fill our minds just sort of in, 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 without even thinking about it. Just, it just sort of seeps in. We absorb it. So much of it, and I'm not trying to pick on individuals at all here. So much of it, the song of fools. We'd rather go to that kind of concert than sit down with someone who loves us and wants to help us and wants to speak some hard truth in our lives. We'd rather go to a concert than sit in a good biblical counselor's office. We'd rather go to a concert than deal with our own sin. And Solomon is saying, don't forget what's most important, what is better. And then verse six flows right out of that. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. And this too is futility. You got to understand the ancient image here. They didn't have ovens. Obviously, everything they cooked was in an open fire. And you know how to start a fire. You got to start with some kindling. So it was these really light, um, um, very thin thorn bushes that were you know, abundant around them. And they would start the fire with this. And James Crenshaw, a commentator, said this, thistles provide quick flames, little heat, and a lot of unpleasant noise. You know, and that's the advice of fools. That's the laughter of fools. It's just like, I'm trying to get my life straight over here and my friends over here just want me to come out with them and just laugh all night and have fun and make life a big joke. How am I supposed to ever make progress in life when I'm just hanging out in the laughter of fools? Solomon is saying, look, you gotta put it all in perspective. Over here, you've got thorn bushes crackling under a pot. They're going up in smoke. Pursue the better way. Pursue wisdom. Now, Pause right here. We're about halfway through our text and I just want to give you a summary of what he's saying. Living life well in light of the reality of a fallen, broken creation means living counterintuitively. Because the world is upside down, you've got to be able to say, you know, I'm going to turn wisdom of the world upside down and live differently than them. I'm not going to go with the flow because life's not found there. Solomon knows he created the flow in his time. Now, for you to move toward these hard choices at all, because who really wants to go to a funeral instead of a, a party? But for you to move toward these hard choices at all, you have to understand that Solomon only has the best possible life for you in mind, okay? He's not trying to steal your fun. He's not trying to make you a boring and somber person. Instead, here's what he's saying. I've done it all. I've seen it all. I've experienced it all. I've had more wealth than you'll ever have. I've had more relationships than you'll ever had. I've had more success than you'll ever have. I've had better parties than you've ever had. I've built better houses than you could ever build. And let me tell you what I've learned. Life is found in the places you don't expect. Like pursuing inner character more than material wealth. Like valuing grief not just entertainment. Like courageously facing life as it is rather than escaping through pleasures, entertainment, and substances. Like engaging with people and ideas and influences that can help you become a human being, not just those that simply entertain you. This is how to navigate an upside-down world, Solomon is saying, with upside-down wisdom. In other words, by making counterintuitive choices. You gotta go a different path than I went, Solomon is saying in his old age. 
Now, the passage goes on to give a lot more wisdom. Honestly, in, in verses 7 to 12, it's kind of hard to follow any clear progression of thought. It almost reads like Proverbs. You know, you got things just sort of thrown in there. But it all builds toward a conclusion in verses 13 and 14. And I want to get there. So we're going to continue through fairly quickly. Verse 7, oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. Uh, just a quick note, mad in this context is not angry. Mad is foolish. So he's saying even a wise man will become foolish if they give in to the, the pressure of oppression and greed. Power tends to corrupt, by the way. That's what Solomon's saying here. Verse eight, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Haughtiness just means pride. So patience better than pride. Verse nine, do not be eager in your heart to be angry for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Here's what he's saying. When the pressures of life come, foolish people react with pride. It's like, that's not about me. I didn't cause that. I don't see myself in that problem. And they also react in anger. A wise person, on the other hand, allows the injustices of life to build in them humility and patience. Counterintuitive, upside down. How do you react to adversity? That's what chapter, uh, verse nine is about. Go on verse 10. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? It is not wisdom that you ask this. I love what he's saying. He's just like, that's a dumb question. <laughs> like, don't ask, why are the former days better? Don't we all do that? It's like, if we could just turn back the clock when life was simple and, you know, and uh, everything else. Um, he's saying, look, there's nothing new under the sun. Creation's been broken for a really long time. You probably forget the bad things about life 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, however old you were. So don't spend your time wishing you could go back. Verse 11, wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. Thought continues in verse 12. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Let me try to clarify what I think he's saying here. Money is good and wisdom is good because they can both shield you from the worst parts of the broken, fallen, meaningless life under the sun. However, one is better than the other because only one can actually help preserve your life and it's not money. So he's saying wisdom's like money and that it shields you, but wisdom can go further than money can because it can actually preserve your life. Well, what does it mean preserve your life? There's a lot of different ways you could think about that. Um, wisdom is personified throughout the Old Testament in, in a way that actually a lot of theological scholars say is pointing to Jesus Christ himself. You know, he's the word made flesh. He's wisdom personified. I think there's just a little bit of a hint there that we can read forward. I'm getting ahead of myself just a minute. What I wanna do... Um, uh, now is I want to move on essentially to the conclusion of this passage in verse 13 and 14. These two verses is really where we'll spend the rest of our time. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Okay, now he's bringing God front and center for us, which is, which is where we should land. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? Wow, we'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be happy. 
But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Start with verse 14 for a minute. What he's essentially saying is, over the course of your life, you will have beautiful things happen to you and you will have tragic things happen to you. You know, anybody over the age of 12 kind of knows that to be true. What Solomon is saying, don't forget that God's in control over both. Here's how we tend to react. When life's going great, we tend to give glory to ourselves. And when life's going terrible, we tend to curse God. That's the wisdom of the world, okay? This is upside down wisdom. Solomon is saying, no, no, you give glory to God when things are going right and you trust God when things are not going well because he is in control over both. Quick analogy. I think what he's saying is you're more like a sailboat dependent on wind than you are a motorboat dependent on your own resources. Okay, so if you're taking a long journey across the sea and you're in a sailboat, some mornings you're gonna wake up, the wind is blowing exactly the perfect way for you to make the most headway and the sun's shining and it's beautiful. Other mornings you wake up and there's a storm and it's pushing the opposite direction. You just have to batten down the hatches and wait it out. Other mornings you wake up, you're ready to roll, but the wind is still. God's not moving. He's not speaking. You're just floating Anybody identify with that? There's some days in life where that's the case. And what Solomon is saying here is when a steady wind is blowing the direction you want it to, give glory to God and enjoy it. But remember, he is just as in control when the storm clouds darken the sky or when there's no wind at all and his purposes will be glorified even in those two. Back to verse 13. And I think this will all start making a little more sense. Consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent. Hold on a second. God didn't jack this place up, did he? Hold on a second. He didn't bring sorrow into the world. That was Adam and Eve in the garden. That was sin. Yes. Solomon knew Genesis chapter three. Paul knew Genesis chapter three in the passage I'm gonna to read to you in a minute. Paul says, you know, you know, God has something to do with this curse that we're experiencing on this earth. Now this creates a tension in your heart that I cannot, res I cannot resolve this for you completely. But this is a significant verse. Solomon has explored everything the world has to offer. And he says, you know what? It's all broken. It's all vapor. Nothing makes sense. And he's coming to the conclusion, God must be in control of even that. And if that's the case, who's going to be able to straighten what he has bent? Remember Lloyd's message, week two of Ecclesiastes? Lloyd was preaching through Ecclesiastes 1, and he said there are three great truths in this chapter from Solomon, there is something wrong with everything. There is something always missing and we can't do anything to fix it. And so Solomon is saying there is one who can. The answer to Solomon's question is pretty obvious. Who can straighten what he has bent? 
only God himself. And so you can start to see theologically where this is going. You can start to see that, oh, that curse in Genesis 3, if you go back and read Genesis 3, God ordained that curse. Now, it was in response to mankind's rebellion. But he says, listen, we cannot allow them to eat from the tree of life and live forever in their state of sin. Live forever in their state of rebellion. So death now rules the world according to God's sovereign choice for this time. Okay, feel the tension with me because I'm gonna help us get some resolution, Lord willing, all right? Who is able to straighten what he has bent? This is where Solomon's wisdom finds its terminating point. Okay, he, he knows it's only God can do it, but he has no idea how God is gonna do it. But by the inspiration of the Spirit, his question is a gigantic arrow pointing straight to the New Testament. Pointing straight to Jesus Christ. Who can straighten what he has bent? Only God himself. Cue the incarnation. That God would take on flesh and submit even to death in order to straighten what's been bent. In order for God to be glorified as this broken creation is renewed and redeemed and everything is made right. So Paul says in Romans 8 verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. Futility, the Greek word in futility is the same as the Hebrew word for vanity in Ecclesiastes. Exact same word translated over. Creation was subjected to futility. Listen to this. Not willingly. It wasn't the creation's choice to be subjected to futility, but because of him, capital H, him, who subjected it. Why? Next verse, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Wow. Creation was subjected to death in response to sin, but so that there will be a day when all will be made new and the rejoicing would be such that would never end. The party would be such that will never end. There'll be no grief on the other side of death for those in God's kingdom. This is why Jesus came. So we are in the middle of this great redemption story. We talk about it in four movements, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Raise your hand if you noticed anything funky with the artwork this morning. Okay, there's like way less than half of you. Check it out. All right. Now, There they are, turned upside down in all their glory. And they represent the earth that we are still living in. Turned upside down with vacant expressions on their faces, arms crossed, not knowing what the next step is. Jesus came for that. Jesus came to turn creation right side up. Jesus came because of what's coming over here on the other side of the wall. Jesus came and, and died on that cross. In fact, in some sense, was that not the most upside down moment in the history of the world right there when mankind put God on a cross and crucified him? Why? So that the new creation would come, so that the world could be flipped back aright. Now, this is what blows my mind as I think about this from a theological perspective. Have you ever noticed how much of Jesus' teaching seemed upside down? 
Like just listen, listen to some of this. Like this is, this is from the mouth of Jesus. Matthew 16, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What? Mark 9, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last and the servant of all. John chapter 12, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, when it dies, it fulfills its purpose for being. Whoa. The most prominent place we find in the gospels where Jesus is, is espousing upside down wisdom is in the Beatitudes that Carl read earlier. By the way, man, don't knock Eugene Peterson. Man, he was a brilliant scholar and brilliant. He had brilliant insight on the condition of mankind. And you go back through those. It's a paraphrase and he's, you know, honest. It's a paraphrase, but it represents such good wisdom. Let me read them to you in the non-paraphrased format. The Beatitudes from Matthew 5 and Luke 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's picking up the upside down wisdom where Solomon left off, all right? He sounds like Solomon, he does. And he's saying, here's how you live in this broken creation that you're in right now. Here's how you live as you're waiting for the kingdom to come. You take an upside down world and you live with upside down wisdom. You make counterintuitive choices. But then there's a massive difference between Solomon and Jesus. Jesus was able to go where Solomon couldn't go. Jesus was able to see beyond death. Solomon could never see beyond death. So Jesus is able to explain why you should want to live upside down right now. Jesus is able to explain, uh, he's able to point to something beyond death, which Solomon was never able to do. And so he's able to say this, in light of the kingdom that's on the way and is even now breaking through through the king, Myself, Jesus says, who has arrived, living life upside down now makes all the sense because of what's to come then. So let me finish the Beatitudes. Some of you thought, he left some words out there. Indeed, I did. Here's the fullness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, for your reward is great in heaven. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, yes, you know, you have to live upside down now in an upside down world because death is true for everyone. That's as far as Solomon could go. But let me tell you, it won't always be this way. For any you put your faith in Jesus, there's gonna be a day where you won't weep anymore. You're only gonna laugh. You see, upside down wisdom has an expiration date. You won't need to spend time at funerals in the earth to come. You won't need to say, I'm gonna mourn for a while rather than laugh. You won't need to do that anymore. Upside down wisdom has an expiration date and it's at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying there'll be a day when all this upside down stuff, whew, put back to rights. And then you can live and you can laugh and you can sing and that's gonna be your true life, your true self. Life under the sun is not all there will be. And this is how you read Ecclesiastes 
as a Christian, okay? Solomon could go so far, he only pointed to the one who could take us across the line, Jesus Christ. Now, Solomon could say, live life in light of your death, and there's wisdom there. Jesus could say, live life in light of the true life that comes after your death. Solomon could say sorrow is better than laughter because it's more appropriate in a world that's broken. Jesus could say a day is coming where sorrow will be fully and finally replaced with laughter and there will be no more tears. That's the difference between Solomon and Jesus. So what? I want to invite you to do one thing this week. I want you to make at least one counterintuitive choice that lives out kingdom values rather than earthly values. Maybe more than one, at least one. And this is gonna take some thought, okay? You, you can't engage God's word just coming in as a consumer. You gotta say, I've come to hear and obey. Now, how are you gonna obey? What I'm saying, the application from the text this morning, particularly in light of the gospel that it points to, is you need to make at least one counterintuitive choice that you wouldn't have made, except that you've come under the word of God. Let me give you three examples. There's hundreds you could engage, but let me give you three. Um, maybe this week, you visit a cemetery instead of going to a movie. Now, you won't want to do that, but maybe you should. What would that choice do? That choice would push back against your instinct to escape. That choice would remind you of your own mortality, which would push you further into the kingdom of God, as Eugene Peterson said earlier. It will help you remember that your hope is in Christ. Example number two, maybe some of you need to grieve something that you lost rather than moving past it too quickly. There's a proper way to grieve. Um, what does it do to grieve properly? It reminds you that this world is indeed broken. It's not your true home and helps you long for everything to be made right, which is a godly longing. Some of you this week need to start grieving something that you've wanted to skip over. Example number three, maybe you need to give something away this week. Maybe there's something that's holding you back, something you enjoy, something you're caught up in. Maybe it's not sinful. It just is distracting you. It's taking a lot of life away from you. It's a way that you choose to escape. You need to give it up. Maybe for some of you this morning, you, you, just something like physical generosity, I need to give up. Like, I got clothes I'm not wearing. I'm gonna give them up. I've got stuff that's holding me back. I've got material things that can encumber me in this. What will that do? What will that choice do? It, it reinforces where your true wealth is. It's not on this earth. Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Continuing with that same theme. And by the way, don't forget, we've got a sharing board right out here as you leave. And so there's some needs on there that you can meet. Some of you in the room, grab one of those before you go and live generously. Dozens more ways that we can apply this text. I wanna challenge you to make one, at least one counterintuitive choice as you lean toward the kingdom that is to come, not just life under the sun. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We come under its authority. That is not always easy to do, but it is a gift to us to hear things sometimes that we don't wish to hear. I pray that difficult truth would make its way down into our hearts and then as it finds a place there, it would grow and be fertilized, that we would lean into you 
and dependence upon Christ even as we choose to do hard things. I pray, Father, that we would have a perspective to say, I've got so many years on this planet. Who knows how much they are? But through faith in Jesus Christ, it's just a drop compared to the true life that is to come. There's so much hope in that. I pray that we would live, as Solomon reminds us, with the end in mind. And the end is glorious, men and women of God. The end is glorious. I pray for those in the room today that are not sure that they have a glorious ending to look forward to. I pray that they would hear right now these words that you'd give them the faith to believe that Jesus came to die for them, that Jesus came to bear the weight of their sin, and through his death, they are made right through faith in Jesus Christ and that they can follow him in resurrection and enjoy the eternity that is to come where there will be nothing but good things. And I pray, Father, even as some may be putting their faith in Jesus right now, that you would reinforce that faith that the spirit that is entering their lives, even in this moment as they have shifted their trust from themselves to you, that that spirit would remind them of the words of Jesus Christ, that they would lean into your word and they would begin to obey it. Thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this church, God. We give you praise in Jesus' name, amen.